So first, let us uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we come to the book of Malachi this morning in need of your grace to enlighten our minds, to inflame our hearts, and to engage our will. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you desire for your church this morning. Jesus, we ask that you intercede for us, that we come to the Father robed in your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We pray this morning for Ben and Mary Grimm who are serving in Papua New Guinea. We pray that as uh, they serve you and serve your people that you would uh, guide them to a safe uh, shelter for a time in Wewak. We praise you for uh, delivering to them uh, their newest child, Judah, and pray that you would protect uh, him and them as they serve you uh, and serve your people. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you are able, would you stand for the reading of the inspired Word of God from Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will stubble, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it leaves them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the, from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So the day is coming when Yahweh's forbearance toward Israel will come to an end. That's what, how this chapter begins. The day is coming when Yahweh's forbearance toward Israel will come to an end. When the Lord Jesus returns, the forbearance of God will cease. See, forbearance is the intentional action of abstaining from doing something 
In the context of the law, it refers to the act of delaying, enforcing a right, an obligation, or a debt. In the context of the holy law of God, it refers to God's act of mercy in delaying his right to exact judgment full and complete on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. We are living today in an age of forbearance. Everyone owes a debt to God. The great day of the Lord has been in forbearance until all the elect of God come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We might call what is going on today in our age, the, the church age, we might call it a season of grace. But for a surety, the day of the Lord is coming. And when that day comes, it is a day that the Lord will make a distinction. It is a day of distinction. It is a distinct day. A day where God makes a distinction between the unrepentant who have trampled upon the mercy of God and those who by grace have received the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. The unrepentant will be burned up. The justice and the righteousness of God will be the new and living way in which God's vessels of grace, His chosen remnant, those who are incorporated into the true Israel, into Jesus Christ, will be warmed and healed of our apostasy and our sin when righteousness reigns forever. The coming day of the Lord is a day when God will make a distinction between the wicked and the good. A day when God's sovereign election will be vindicated through judgment of the unrepentant upon those who have been unchanged by the mercy of God. So as we open this passage in, in verses uh, 13 through 15 in chapter 3, I want us to notice this, that these are those who have received mercy and yet have trampled on the mercy of God. They have thought it not a thing. Notice with me. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So last week we saw the immutable attribute of God, that God is unchangeable. The God of justice is always and can only be just while he simultaneously is the God of mercy who has always been and will always be merciful. The issue before us this morning is that God is unchanging. But in this text, the problem is the issue is that the, despite the mercies of God toward Judah, they remain unchanged. God is unchanging, but they remain unchanged. Your words have been hard against me, as Yahweh's charge given through the messenger Malachi. I was reading the English translation of the Tanakh in the Jewish Bible, and it renders the people's response a little differently than it does here in our Bibles. It says, what? This is their response to him when he says that you've been speaking hard against me. What have we been saying amongst ourselves against you? In our passage, it says, what have we said? What have we spoken against you? But in the, in the Jewish Bible, it reads like this. What have we been saying amongst ourselves against you? This really gets at the idea that although God had been merciful toward them, 
There was no inward change. They had an outward uh, semblance, right? Outwardly, they might have been saying, you know, we have said no harsh words against you. In our practice, in worship, right, we sing praises to you, Yahweh. We, we regard you as the one on the throne in our worship. But there's no inward change. There's nothing inwardly going on. They speak amongst themselves that they have taken the mercy of God for granted. You know, we've said no harsh word against you. The judgment here, though, is that God is saying, your attitude towards me is reflected in the words that you speak amongst yourselves and the way that you conduct your life actually speaks harshly against me. You might have the outward appearance of godliness, but inwardly, what comes out as speech against me is how you live. You see, uh, Matt sent me this thing uh, yesterday, and I'm going to try to remember how to quote it because it was really good. The very end piece of this says that God doesn't call us and doesn't call Israel here to affirm their identity. He calls us and calls them to a transformed life. He doesn't want to affirm our identity he wants to transform our life. And, he, and the expectation is, is that when you have received the mercy of God, the grace of God, it will be reflected in a transformed life, in a new and living way. But here they are, mumbling and grumbling about God. Their attitude is reflected in their actions. Have you been changed have you been transformed? Is the church a gathering of people who have been changed by the gospel? Are we a people who desire the excellencies of God on the Lord's day? But in our attitudes, our conversations, our work life, we may have adopted the attitude of the age. In some ways, I see Christians exalting celebrity. I see Christians sometimes idolizing those who achieve success, even though they know that that person is poor in character. Sometimes I've even saw in the last election cycle people giving allegiance to leaders who we know have questionable ethics, saying things like this, as long as they get the job done and stand for the things that are important to me, how they behave is no importance. As long as, as, as I affirm the truth of the gospel, we might say, some of us, how I live in the world doesn't matter. Christ is loving and merciful. Well, he is those things. But because he's loving and merciful, it transforms a life. It is reflected in a transformed life. Paul writes in his second letter to Timothy that this will be the attitude of the church in the latter days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And get this, 
having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And as we see these who Yahweh is addressing in Israel, Judah, right? Your words, you have spoken against me. There is some appearance of godliness, but you deny the power of a transformed life. You deny that this mercy that I have shown you as a people would transform you to living according to my precepts. Among the church today, there are those who profess the gospel and that yet they remain unchanged by the mercy of God. Banking on the promises of God, though they are unaffected by them. The pulpit sometimes is manned by people who suppose and espouse this, that grace is cheap and that agape is sloppy. The pulpit is manned by those who do that. They say things like, God will bear with any sort of sin that you have. You don't need to change. No need for transformation. No need for repentance. I know that you refuse to be changed by the gospel, but your confession of the truth is right, so surely you will escape the judgment of God. And that is the preaching that we hear often in churches today. And then they say things like this. Remember, God has a perfect plan for your life, and He just wants you to be happy. Of course, that is a lie. God has a perfect plan for redemption and He wants you to be holy as He is holy, to live a transformed life. Well, Judah here says there's no profit in living a life according to God's principles. It's beneficial to live as the worldly do is what they're saying, right? The most ruthless and selfish are successful and the ungodly people, they seem to prosper. They thumb their noses at Yahweh and yet they escape without any consequences. See, with our mouths, we espouse the the principles uh, of Yahweh. We do so in the sanctuary, right? These people would. But in reality, where they live, it really doesn't matter. Yahweh bears with the iniquity of the people of the covenant in the same way that he does evildoers is what they're getting at. This is a person unaffected by the mercy of God. This is a person who is taking the forbearance of Yahweh for granted. This person is unchanged and unrepentant. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, it describes a distinction between those who outwardly express covenant faithfulness, but inwardly are unchanged. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It is a transformed life. It is an internal transformation that Yahweh is after. So here are these who have spoken amongst themselves negatively about the justice of God and about how God is, is that, that the evil just seem to escape and that there is no purpose in following Yahweh's principles while they wait. Well, now there's a remnant. There's a remnant and we praise God that there is a remnant. Listen to the ones who are transformed by his grace and mercy in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, 
In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. See, this is a repeat of the first uh, part of this of this book. Uh, Malachi sort of repeats himself in what they call, it's called a chiastic structure of this book. It, it works in this way. It's repeated. The first question, the first part that we, we looked at was God is vindicated in his judgment of the arrogant and the unrepentant because his, his elective love does really bring change in people's lives. The proof of the truth is a transformed life by the love of God, by the mercy of God, and the enabling spirit according to grace. You see, the people of God have, are those who have been changed. Judah needed to be changed. The prevailing attitude of most there was unchanged. They had been unchanged by his mercy. So I ask us this, who must be changed? Who must be changed? All people must be changed in order to enter the kingdom of God. Because by nature, humanity is alienated from God, rebellious toward God, and therefore subject to the wrath of God. Romans 1, 18 through 20 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known of God is plain to them, because He has shown it to them. For his visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All must be changed. God's wrath is vindicated in his distinction of the unrepentant and those who have been changed. A remnant of Judah has been transformed by the electing love of God. They are those who not only praised Yahweh in the temple, but they also, as they conducted their affairs in the world, according to the fear of the Lord, it says here. Their words and actions have been transformed in such a way as their lives reflect Yahweh's love for them and their love in return to Him. One must be changed. You may be thinking, change is impossible. No one really can change who they are in a fundamental way. Today among us, there are some who probably must change. You may be one who attends worship services regularly. Maybe you're a part of a Bible study. You even give your time and energy to good causes. Yet you're, as Paul describes to Timothy, you have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power to change you. In John's gospel, Jesus says to Nicodemus, basically, unless you change, your worship, your knowledge of the truth, your service of good deeds won't gain you entry into the kingdom of God. Kingdom people are changed by God's electing, elective love. But how? Jesus answered him in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You must be changed by the Spirit according to grace. What I want to tell you confidently, 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 and what you can tell people that you proclaim this truth to, you can tell them confidently, without a doubt, that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes people in a fundamental way. In a fundamental way, you are changed. And if we profess that name, we must live as the changed people of God. Not trampling upon His mercies, but people walking in grace, in the power of God's grace. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 1-10 through 10 says, and it describes everyone who's sitting in this room. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's the best two words in the Bible. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. I would ask you this morning, anybody here this morning, if you need to, cry out to God and say, God, I need to change. I need to be changed from the inside out. I am dead in my sins and unable to change myself. Lord God, by your Spirit, will you reveal the life-changing truth of Jesus' death for my failures? God of heaven, will you breathe the life-giving Spirit that I might be raised to new life as you have also raised Him from the dead? Will you cry out to Him? We should notice as we look at our passage, that this change is permanent. In verses 17 and 18, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The changed are written in a book. Think about that. The changed are written in a book, remembered forever, never to be forgotten. The changed are distinctly added to the book of eternal life. They are those who are spared the wrath of God against the unrepentant, but against the unrepentant and the arrogant, they trample upon the mercies of God. They are those who count His forbearance as weakness. The changed are God's forever treasured possession. 
Do you know those in the world, you've probably talked to people who count the forbearance of God as weakness. They do. Think about, think about conversations, and I bet you've had them. Why would a good God allow this kind of suffering to continue? They're really saying, they're talking about God being forbearing and not calling to account, giving them grace, giving them time to repent and turn to Him. They're really trampling on the forbearance of God and they see Him as weak. Because if He could stop this, He'd stop it. Of course, He could stop it. But a day is coming. And are you sure you want that day to come? If you think God is weak and you want Him to come, are you sure you're ready for that day? See, the changed are God's forever treasured possession, it says here. When I make up my people, my treasured possession, when I make them up, when I make up my people, on that day, it'll be those who have received my grace, who've received my mercy and my kindness, who have been changed in a fundamental way. You see... God is unchanged, isn't He? He's unchanged in His holiness. His standard remains. God is unchanging in His judgments. And here's the thing. Men and women out in the world don't really like the unchanging attribute of God, do they? Here's what they wish. They wish that they can endure His perfections and they could do so for a little bit of, uh, of time if, if that over the course of time that, that His his perfections would maybe lessen a little bit. If God's sovereignty would let up, then maybe I could be sovereign for a while. If He would lighten the standard of holiness, perhaps we could do, endure that for a while, and then He would allow me to do whatever I want when I want to. But you see, God does not change either in His mercy for sinners nor in His exacting standard against the unrepentant. And though judgment is in forbearance, which is again defined as the act of delaying from enforcing a right, an obligation, or a debt, God's act of mercy, He's delaying His right to exact judgment full and complete on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. But for a surety, the day of the Lord is coming. And it is a day when the wicked will no longer be in forbearance, when none of the unchanged, unrepentant will be able to escape as Judah had, had supposed earlier. See, they had supposed that evil just goes on and, and they can uh, test, put God to the test, and they'll escape. Well, there will be no escape. Make no doubt about it. Listen to what the passage says here in chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise. With healing in its wings, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. 
The refiner's fire that we spoke about a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, is that which purifies the covenant people of God. Those who have been changed will continue to be changed and refined by the fire of the Spirit's conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Though it will not destroy them. I think that is often the reason why we don't come before the Lord and really confess honestly our sins. Because we come not knowing that, that His discipline of us is refining. It is, it is the process of changing us. But we think that we might be crushed if we go. But the people who have been changed and are being changed by the gospel should know that, that this fire, this refining fire, does not destroy them. And there is no escape for us, is there? The refining work of God. Try to, try to run away from the refining work of God in your life. Try to run away from conviction in the heart. down. Try to run away from Him. It will keep pursuing you. When you belong to Him, it will keep pursuing you. It will keep coming after you. Try to escape that. But this fire that we're talking about here is rather different. This is a different kind of oven. This is a judgment of God to destroy the wicked, to make a distinction between the repentant and the arrogant unrepentant. The great day of the Lord is a day of distinction, a day of wailing and gnashing of teeth for the unrepentant, but a day of great rejoicing for the remnant who have been changed by grace. The change will rejoice that the world is now ruled in complete righteousness, a day when the change will be completely warmed by the healing God who has completed that for them, for their apostasy, through the suffering of Christ for their rebellion. On the day that God acts, the wicked will no longer prosper. There will be no escape for them. The arrogant will be brought low and destroyed. Righteousness and goodness will prevail. For surety, the great day of the Lord is coming. But I want you to ask yourself what I asked of you a few weeks ago. When the great day of the Lord comes, will you stand having been changed by the gospel? Will it be those who boast in their faithful adherence to their own sense of what is religiously pious that will stand? Who will stand? Who will overcome in that great day? It is those who have been changed by the Spirit according to grace. Those who have repented of sin by the supernatural work of God, whose name has been written for eternity in the Lamb's book of life. It is those who stand in Christ who have been changed. I want us to hear this morning, this is really all at once good news. This is good news. As we look at... Verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. This is sun, S-U-N. And the point that Malachi is making here is that the world will be warmed by the righteousness of God. That in this day, this great day that comes, righteousness will prevail. I can't think of we, we, we sang, behold, he's coming in the clouds, right? And we were, we're thinking of what a great day that will be. 
I can't wait for the day when righteousness is the rule. You know, we look around the world and we, and, and we might adopt mal- the attitude of, of Judah, right? The wicked escape. They test God and they get away with it. And those people were saying, then what is the point? What is the point in doing good and following after God? Because evil prevails, they test God, and they get away with it. God is merciful. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But he promises here, when it says, for behold, the day is coming, it really means this, for a surety, for real, for a surety, judgment of God is coming. And there will be a distinction between those who may have the appearance of godliness but yet are denying its power and those who have been transformed by the gospel. There will be a distinction. And God will be vindicated in his love, his electing love for those that he has called. Be vindicated in the world. Then it will show the ungodly that yes, God's righteous precepts were right and I should not have trampled upon his mercy. It'll show the believing that changed that, yes, indeed, God is a God of justice, but he's also this God who is merciful and patient and waiting for the last person to come to repentance and faith and to receive his mercy, to receive his goodness. He is patient with us. We praise God that he is. But I would, I, I would also say that as we read this passage, we should, we should hear a bit of a warning. And it's this, don't trample upon the grace of God. Do not suppose that God will somehow relent of his exacting standard just because his judgments have been delayed. Just because you are now living in forbearance. Do not take his patience and kindness toward you as a reason to live as any way you want. It is his kindness toward us, this patient, this long suffering that he's done and is doing toward us and towards the world that should lead us to repentance, not to debauchery. Today is the day of salvation. And see, so while it is still today, repent. Plead with the Spirit to transform your dead soul and raise raise you to life in Christ. Because the day of the Lord will come and Jesus Christ will come and He will be the true and swift witness against those who have hardened their hearts against God. Who will be the true and faithful witness? The day is coming. Verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Yahweh closes the Old Testament here in Malachi with a reminder of the two great prophets. He says, look for the day when the embodiment of all the great prophets who spoke will come. Remember to obey their words, because before the great day of distinction comes, I am sending the Messiah. I am sending the forerunner, and in after him, I am sending the Messiah. Hear and obey the words of these prophets until I send him. 
And when I send him, listen to him and obey his word. Church, the gathered, transformed people of God, you will be changed. What is our way forward knowing that the day of the Lord is coming? That the day of distinction is coming? Here's the warning. Here's the encouragement, the admonishment before we leave here. Heed the words of the Scriptures. Hear them and obey them. Hear the words of Christ. Be not hearers only, but be doers of the Word. Because the day is going to come. See, those who are hearers of the Word only are unchanged by it, aren't they? There is an expectation, really, that when the Word of God is preached, you do what it says. That's really an expectation, isn't it? What it says, what you're convinced of right here this morning, do it. Of course, you're thinking maybe, I've tried to do it, and all along I've failed. Hold on. That which God calls you to do, He will enable you to do by His grace and by the power of the Spirit. So if He calls you to repent in a certain way, calls you to a changed life, something foreign than to what you're used to, if He calls you to change, know that the God who saved you is the God who can and will enable you to do what it is that his word says. But those who are just hearers of the word of God, they are those who have not been transformed by the word of God. If you can hear it and be unaffected, you might be just like those who have not changed, who say that it makes no difference in following after the Lord makes no difference whether I follow his precepts or not because the evil seem to escape. They test God and it doesn't matter. But there, here's how you can know, like confidently, right? I want you guys to be confident when you leave here. I want you to be so confident that, that what the word God's, of God says about who you are in him is really, really true. That change happens and can happen and will happen and does happen by the power of God, you can be changed and you will be changed. And that whatever it is that God calls you to, he will enable you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his grace. I want you to be confident in that. I know many of us who have left some Sunday mornings and, I, and, I, and I've, I, I've seen it going, man, it, I can't. Well, that's a good word, but I've never been able to do it so far. I'm not going to be able to do it now. Don't be defeated. Don't be defeated. Christ has won the victory for you. Christ has won that victory for you, and he has changed you, transformed you by his grace. You see... The Lord's going to make a distinction one day between those who are in Christ in name only and those who have been transformed by the Spirit to live a life according to grace. Those who claim to be in Christ and are unrepentant in word and deed will regret that they long for the day of His return. 
I know that they, there might be people who, who can sing as we sing. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. And I say, if you have not been transformed by His grace, please be careful what you just sang. You should be warned to sing that. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Do you really want that for yourself? If you remain unrepentant, because he has the right to rule and reign on this earth in holiness and exact righteousness and justice. If you say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come, and you have not repented of your sin and turned to faith in Jesus Christ, that will be a terrible day. That will be a terrible day. Because they'll regret that day, because he is the faithful and the true witness, because he is unchanged, he is unrelenting in his holiness, and he is coming to rule and reign in righteousness forever. This Jesus, as we say, come Lord Jesus, come. He's coming to rule and reign in righteousness forever. But here's what we say. Let the redeemed say, even so come, come Lord Jesus, come. We are a church refined by fire, made ready for you by grace, made ready for you. Think about when we sing that song, we'll be a church ready for you. What does ready mean? Except changed. We'll be a people transformed, ready for you, transformed by your grace. Refined in the fire of God's loving discipline towards us. I don't think anybody likes to sign up for discipline. But I guarantee you that when the Lord comes, you'll be thankful for the discipline of the Lord in your life. For the transforming work of the gospel in your life, even though it might have stung a bit <laughs> as you do it.